It's hardly a tough case to make that um, there has been an erosion in the original intent for the Thanksgiving holiday. I don't really have to spend belabor that point uh, to make that case. Uh, it began back really in 1939 when President Franklin D. Roosevelt declared as the president that contrary to tradition up to that point for some number of decades, I think going back to, to Lincoln's day actually, uh, FDR said that we were going to move the holiday from the fourth Thursday of the month to the third Thursday of the month so as to allow more shopping days in time for Christmas. Uh, that's really where that came from. And so now today, even on to, in today's newspaper, I think it was on the front page of the paper, I did see it's referred to as Tea Day. Or you might think that stands for Turkey Day, for all anyone would know. Or you hear stories, you hear stories, true stories of, of textbooks recounting the history and where all this came from and why the pilgrims and why all these things. Well, Thanksgiving, some textbooks will tell you this in our, in our school systems, will say that Thanksgiving was originally all about when the pilgrims gave thanks to the Indians. Now, no doubt they should have and did. But that wasn't the point, and that's easily documented. Now, let's, lest uh, we be uh, too hasty and too quick in the ways in which we take offense at this, we need to do some reflecting on our own hearts for just a moment here, because the problem with Thanksgiving ultimately is not just out there where we can easily point fingers. It's in here. It's in here. If you're honest, if you'll take a long enough and a, and a hard enough look at your own heart and your own days and your own life and your own self-expressions, you'll have to reckon with the reality of discontentment with your own circumstances or distrust in the Lord's dealings with you at this stage of your life or doubt, perhaps, even in His goodness, which, by the way, inevitably leads to disobedience to His commands. The problem is not just out there. The problem is in here. It's not just an erosion of thanksgiving. It's an atrophy of the heart. Ours included. It's, it's so bad. The, the condition of our hearts is so bad and so crippling and so real that, that we, we can't even hardly begin to assess the external manifestations of other people and how it's coming out we don't even know what's going on in our own hearts and aren't even willing to own up to it very much, very well, in our own hearts. So, where do we go? Where do we turn? What can be said? Is there any hope for us? Well, indeed there is. There's much hope for us. Psalm 95 is where I'd like for us to look for a little bit here this morning. Psalm 95, uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd I encourage you to turn there now. If you're sitting by somebody with some, you know, slide them a dollar. Let them, maybe they'll let you look on with them. Um, it's in the heart of the, the, the Bible. Just open it up. You'll find it there, uh, the Psalms. Um, Psalm 95 is where we are, and I'm going to read uh, these 11 verses, and I'd ask you to pay heed uh, to God and His Word. Oh, come. Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God 
and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when, you put your, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for these few minutes that we have to spend here at uh, the beginning of a week. And we ask that uh, you would shape us for all that is coming in this week uh, through the time we're spending together here this morning. We pray in particular for uh, your hand on us, your spirits working in us as we uh, delve into your word. And really what we're asking is that your word would delve into us. Um, help us here. Help us here deeply, not just on a surface level, but, but truly at a heart's level. In your name we pray. Amen. I'm sure no few of you heard just a few weeks ago that the European Space Agency pulled something extraordinary off uh, the landing of a, of a spacecraft on a comet. It was astonishing, uh, especially when you start unpacking some of the, just the, the statistics. I'm just going to throw a little bit at you to try and give you a sense of the scope of what was accomplished here. So this took uh, about, let's see, the planning for this whole thing was 25 years ago when it began. The mission itself took roughly about 10 years for this spacecraft known as Philea uh, to get out there to this uh, comet. Uh, Philea weighs about 220 pounds, roughly the size of a, an ordinary washing machine. Uh, it traveled about 6.4 billion miles. That's a road trip, long haul. This comet it's 2.5 miles in diameter. That sounds big, but on the grand scheme of things, no. Like a, like, like a grain of salt, really. So it's, it's roughly about 10 billion tons in mass. Now here's how fast it's moving. 40,000 miles an hour. That's a moving target. That's a fast-moving target. Now, even if... Nothing comes back in terms of the drilling that this little thing, this little spacecraft is going to do and the results that it beams back to the earth. Even if none of that ever comes off, this will have proven to be an astonishing accomplishment. It really will be. When you think about, think about it this way, any variation, any variation of the slightest bit, any error of calculation, when you're talking about that kind of distance, just the slightest error, just, just getting the target off just a hair, or the trajectory off just a micron, mission failure. But right now, even as we speak, that little washing machine-sized probe is sitting on a comet that's moving 40,000 miles an hour. Mission accomplished. 
no drift. They pulled it off. Oh, that would be true of me. Oh, that that would be true of us. No drift. No drift. I mean, we do drift. Our, our attention span whew, just you know, moves. Just, it doesn't take much, does it? Um, our, our interests shift all the time. You start one hobby, you lay that down, you pick up another one, right? Um, our, our institutions drift off of their original purposes and fall and fail and go into decay. Relationships drift, right? We drifted apart. How many times do you, do you hear that? We as individuals just drift. Christians, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, drift in their allegiance and their loyalty and their love from ostensibly their Lord and Savior. And that's where Psalm 95 comes into play. Our Lord knows us so, so well. He knows us so, so well, and He knows exactly what we, what we need, what we need at the deepest level. And if I can just sum up this psalm just in this simple way, I'm going to put it like this, that our hearts would not drift, but instead stay true. We need to hear the Lord's summons. That our hearts would not drift, but instead stay true. We need to hear the Lord's summons. Of course, that does beg the question, doesn't it? What is the summons? And we see that here. And it's twofold. And it's there in your outline. Perhaps you're looking at it right now. Two parts. The, the, the summons has a, has a warning aspect to it, but yet at the same time, an invitation. The warning is gracious. The invitation is gracious. And we've got to hear and respond to both. Let's look at this together. First, the warning. Now, I'm not going to start at the beginning of the psalm. I actually want to start towards the end, the second half, uh, starting at the last part of verse 7. Listen to what the psalmist says, uh, really what the Lord is saying in a, in a corporate worship saying, saying through the worship leader to the people. The speaker has shifted at this point uh, as you're reading through the psalm. So here's what we have. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. What the psalmist is doing here is hearkening back to a time long ago of, of accounts that surely had been passed down to generation to generation to generation of what, the, what some events that had transpired there between the exodus from Egypt and the actual giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. If you've got, uh, again, if you've got your Bible, keep your thumb there in Psalm 95. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. To Exodus 17, this is the uh, second book in the Bible, the second book of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis and Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. I'm just going to read the first seven verses here because this is part of uh, what the psalmist is tapping into in Psalm 95. These, this event, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the people, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on 
before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So think with me just here for a moment. These lessons that are being, um, well, that need to be learned, these events that are being alluded to here, what had the people... Thinking back Exodus 17 and the, the flow of historical events, if you're reading through the book of Exodus, what had they seen up to this point? They have seen the terrible plagues in Egypt and God's power demonstrated. They have seen his presence manifested as a pillar by fire, by cloud by day and fire by night. They have crossed the Red Sea. The bitter water, just immediately before this, the bitter water has been turned sweet. Manna has come down from heaven. So now, they've got some concern one day about water supply. And they respond, how? With faith and trust, right? No, just the way we would. Just the way I would, just the way you would. By, as as the, the Lord says, as sums it up here in Psalm 95, alluding again back to Exodus 17, by testing him, by putting him to the proof. Or another way of putting that would be doubting. Doubting his power to work and his love for them. Their fears loomed larger. Their faith shrunk smaller. So, remembering the past and then reflecting on the lessons of that, what do we see? Well, you see that right there in verse 8 of Psalm 95. What's happened in there is a hardening of the heart. And that's what's being warned of here. A hardening of the heart. The heart, in, in Hebrew understanding of what that means, not the, not the muscle that beats within your chest, but the core, the center of your emotions, your thoughts, your will, your choices. That's your heart. And Imagine that being hardened, that being dull, that being unresponsive, that being unyielding, a hardened heart. That's what we're being warned of here. And in essence, what the psalmist is telling us, all of us, any reader of the psalm is, don't think yourself to be immune. It happened then, it could happen now. Heed the warning. Be aware of the danger, the very real danger. I mean, th this is exactly, by the way, the, the, the wording, the phrasing that's used to describe Pharaoh. In Exodus, he hardened his heart towards the Lord. The author of Hebrews, again, keep your thumb here in Psalm 95. Head with me to the New Testament, Hebrews, if you're trying to find it. It's after the Thessalonian letters and after Timothy's, Timothy, the first and second, and the Titus and Philemon. So you got a bunch of T's, a P, in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 95. He's reflecting and hearkening back to these very same events as the psalmist is. And he draws this lesson from that. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be 
any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Again, the, the point being that we dare not, any of us, think ourselves to be immune to this. Oh, I'm above that. No, you're not. In fact, the moment you say that, you show yourself to be standing on the precipice of it. You hear and heed this summons that our hearts would not drift and that we would stay true to the Lord. It is a hidden danger, my friends. But hidden dangers are no less real. In fact, they are all the more deadly. Some of you may have heard the, the news account just from uh, a few weeks ago. Um, I'll read it to you just to make it simple. Nearly 70 years, ago, 70 years following the conclusion of World War II, Allied bombs are still exploding in Germany or at least one is, emergency crews working near Offenbach in central Germany detonated an unexploded British bomb on August 19th after a local construction crew discovered the ordnance embedded along the edge of the Autobahn 3. Unable to defuse the 1,100-pound bomb, the ordnance crew had to shut down the busy German highway. The explosion left a 60-foot-wide crater in the Autobahn. I'm trying to gauge how big that would be here. Basically, it would take you two sections out. Sorry. <laughs> Sit on the wings. Um, closing that portion of the highway indefinitely. Again, hidden dangers <laughs> are still dangers. They're just more deadly because you can't see them and you think yourself to be okay. There's a danger of a hardened heart. We need to honestly say when in grappling with this, but for the grace of God, truly... But for the grace of God, there go I. Young Christians, I have to say this to you. You are so naive and inexperienced. You think you're okay. Older Christians, you're not getting off here either. Your problem is you are experienced. And so you think you're okay. No, you're not. The moment you think you're okay, you're on the precipice in your arrogance, in your presumption. I mean, think with me about the church of the Old Testament, if I can put it that way. What, again, what had they seen and how did they respond? The church of the New Testament, what had they seen? Who had they heard? Jesus, the apostles. How did they respond? You know how they responded? If you read through the New Testament letters... And you get to the sections, typically the second half of those letters, especially with Paul, and you start reading these commands. And you start thinking to yourself, well, what, what am I saying that? It's because of what's going on in the church. He's having to say those things. We dare not think ourselves to be immune or above these things. Now, you want to counter back, and I'll counter with you. Those of you who are more theologically attuned to these doctrines of grace and Calvinism and five points and all this, at this point you're probably beginning to get your back up a little bit and you're saying, what about the perseverance of the saints? What about God's preservation of His people? Is that not real? Is it not true that once saved, always saved? Yes! But not because we're lazy! He holds us as we... He works through means... He holds us and we persevere. He preserves and enables us to persevere 
to the end, but through, the, through his own ordained means, our, among those means being our heeding these warnings and his holding to us with an iron grip, his holding us by the power of the Spirit. I know that's confusing. I know it's hard to get your mind around, but it's not a call for laziness. It's not a call to presume. To presume. That we, dare, we, dare, that we not drift, that we stay true. We've got to hear the Lord's summons. And again, part of that summons is the warning. The other part is this invitation. I want to shift now to that. And it's a two-part invitation. And it's a sweet invitation indeed. The first five verses, um, you see that here. Um, just for time's sake, I'm going to not actually read those five verses again, but I just want to say this, as you're looking at them, you're looking at the response, the let us do this and let us do that, there in verses 1 and 2, and then you see the reasons, the grounding for that in verses 3 through 5. What you see here are some, some transformative truths. Some transformative truths. You, you see that before he is described as being this one, this great God, this great King, who has made everything. Everything is mentioned here. The heavens and the earth. What else do you want? That's pretty, pretty inclusive in terms of a Hebrew understanding of, of reality. And, and all of, it's all in, included. And, and the, the idea being that nothing is beyond the Lord's reach and reign and rule. Nothing. He has made everything and nothing is beyond His reign, His reach, and His rule. Put it another way, the hands that made everything at the beginning, our hands that hold it all together now. Whatever we think is so much bigger than us, and there is so much that's bigger than us, is just nothing compared to him. Absolutely nothing. Now, those are transformative truths if you'll take them into your heart. And those transformative truths will begin to have a transformative effect. You begin to take that reality into your heart, and you'll start finding yourself, as he says, in, as the commands are given in verses 1 and 2, singing, making a joyful noise, being thankful, coming forward with, or just even on your own, just by yourself, songs of praise as we take those things into our heart. Because God is king. Our God is king. There is none of His purpose, put it this way, none of His purposes can be diverted or thwarted, or frustrated, or slowed down, to say nothing of being stopped in our lives, always, all the time, Psalm 95, verses 1 through 5, are true. He is the king. And we move on then to verses 6 and 7. And again, we see some transformative truths. Again, first the call, they're in verse 6. And the reasons, they're in verse 7. And the transformative truth being this. His greatness is so high above us, but His goodness is right here beside us. Or if I can use the words of John Stott, who said, His majesty is tempered with His mercy and His glory with His grace. The Creator of all is our Shepherd. The hands that made it all 
are hands that guide us through it all. Do you hear that? Do you know that? Let that steep. Steep. Soak. Soak into your bones. And the more it does, it, again, it brings forth this transformative truth. Brings forth this transformative effect. We just find ourselves coming, worshiping, bowing down, kneeling, every one of which, by the way, is a getting low before God. Why? Because we are awed and amazed and hearts full of wonder that this great God would condescend to be ours and to call us His. You need to hear His summons. That's what the summons is. Hear the warning. Hear the invitation. Take these things to heart that these transformative things would take place within our hearts. Now, how might this work itself out in everyday life? I'm going to read to you a letter is actually something that I did with the senior high and college guys just uh, an hour ago. Um, September 26th, American pastor Saeed Abedini marked two years since Iranian authorities imprisoned him for his Christian faith in an Iranian prison. Now, at a prayer vigil at Washington, in Washington, D.C., just pa- this past uh, September, Abedini's wife, Nagme, read a letter that her husband... Um, Saeed had written for their daughter for her eighth birthday. Okay? The birthday was just a few weeks before. Now, the, the quote's actually in your, your outline, the backside, the quotes and notes. I'm just going to read a brief paragraph from that letter from this American pastor who today is in an Iranian prison cell for his faith writing to his eight-year-old daughter on the occasion of her birthday. God is in control of the whole world and everything that is happening in it is for His good purpose, for His glory, and will be worked out for our good. Jesus allows me to be kept here for His glory. He is doing something inside each of us and also outside in the world. People die and suffer for their Christian faith all over the world, and some may wonder why. But you should know the answer of why is who. It is for Jesus. He is worth the price, and He has a plan to be glorified through our lives. Could you say that? We need to. We really, really, really need to. We may never face anything remotely like Saeed Abedini. But the principles apply over to whatever, wherever, whoever, however. You know, so some of you grew up in the church, some of you grew up in Christian families, some of you at least, you know, bare minimum, went to VBS, and so you learned this little prayer, right? And, and the food was served. You were taught to say what? God is great, God is good. Like, I would say it may be time to take that prayer off the shelf and dust it off. Do you get what happens to your heart when you let those two things begin to do their work in you? what it does to your worship, what it does to your response to the trials, the difficulties of life. It means you can rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. It means you can grieve, but not without hope. It means you can have peace 
within chaos, calm, within the storm, assurances, even in the midst of your raging questions. All the more so when we grapple with this. Psalm 95.1, who is this ultimately about? Who do we know this is ultimately about? Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Who is this rock? Very good. Going further, pressing harder, Exodus 17. I want to go back there. Okay, Exodus 17, just one verse. One verse. Verse 6. The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Do you understand what's going on there? When Moses strikes the rock, he is striking God. And in that striking comes life for the people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the rock was Christ. Who is the rock of your salvation? Jesus. And our Lord is inviting us here this morning. Heed the summons that we might stay true and not go astray. Heed the summons. Hear this invitation to dwell on Him and who He is and what He has done for us. I'm reminded here, just wrapping this up, of a, of a sermon preached years and years ago um, by a gentleman by the name of Thomas Chalmers. Now, Chalmers is known by some church historians as being the greatest uh, churchman in 19th century uh, Scotland. And he's known for a lot of things, among which was his beautiful, wonderful work with the poor, uh, and also the points that he was making in a sermon that he preached that today is known as the expulsive power of a new affection. I got a quote for it from it uh, in your quotes and notes. I want to read to you. Uh, it's really well worth, um, and you can find it on the internet. The entire text, the entire sermon. I just want to read this one line: "The best way of casting out an impure affection is to admit a pure one, and by the love of what is good to expel the love of what is evil. Thus it is that the freer the gospel, the more sanctifying is the gospel." And the more it is received as a doctrine of grace, the more will it be felt as a doctrine according to godliness. What is Chalmers saying there? That however important it is, however important it may be that our will be given towards this, that we strive with all we have. Ultimately, what this all hinges on is the work of the Holy Spirit. Changing us. Driving out of us the old affections given towards nothing but ourselves and the love of the world to God and His work. I put it this way. If I can, it's, it's not surprising then that if this is the way the Lord works by, via expulsive power of new affections, if that's actually the way He works, it ought not to surprise us that if we would have but eyes to see, He would might just give us, because He's so good, living illustrations of it all around us all the time. If we, again, if we would but have eyes to see. Let me give you one. And you're going to see it in just the coming weeks. Those leaves on the trees that just don't want to fall off. We've got oak trees in our backwoods. And I, I know, every year we see this. These stubborn little leaves. They just hang on there through the, the blustery winds of winter. Most of them, of course, are down on the ground, decaying. But some just hang on. 
like, you know, just obnoxiously waving at you in the wind because they refuse to let go until spring comes and warmth comes and this power is, if I can put it this way, is awakened from deep within those trees and this new life, this new growth comes out, pushing the old out. What is that? Keep an eye out for it. Remember what I told you. That's the expulsive power of a new affection, and that's the way the Lord works in our lives. Now let me ask you something. How is the dead going to be driven out of you? How, how are those dead leaves going to be driven off of your branches and mine? How might we then be able to not drift but stay true by the Spirit's enabling us to hear these things in Psalm 95? The Gospel, the warning, and the invitation, both of which are good both of which come from the, 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 the voice of a loving God, that we might catch a, a vision of the rock of our salvation struck for us that we might live. My friends, we are, as the old song says, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Do you not? Prone to leave the one you love? Well, that we might not drift and stay true. May we hear the Lord's summons here. All that's hard to hear about us and all that's so sweet to hear about Him. Let's pray. Lord, help us indeed hear this summons. Help us to be humble about ourselves and our own self-assessments and what we are and are not capable of. And help us all the more to wonder over your pursuit of such people with such wayward hearts. Indeed, that our hearts would be increasingly gripped by your grace. And that through all of that, it would come to be a full expression in all of our lives of, of this rejoicing, rejoicing in the Lord and reverence of the Lord, of you that all the discontentment and doubt in our hearts would be driven out by trust and faith and hope. We pray that you would make us this week, as folks come over to our homes and we go over to other folks' homes, to indeed but be what we are, salt and light, a city on a hill. That we would be strangely grateful Strangely thankful, strangely content and glad because our Lord is a great God, the King above all gods. He is our shepherd and we are the sheep of His hand. In your name we pray. Amen.